This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Hello and welcome to the Christianese podcast. My name is Drew Fitzgerald, episode three. Hedge of Protection. Hedge of Protection. You ever hear that? hear that a lot. Hedge of Protection. Damn, we are praying a hedge of protection around you, buddy. That's right, a hedge. Mm -hmm. Around you and your whole family. It's no secret that Christians speak in an odd way, particularly when we pray. One such way is a hedge of protection. It's a strange way that we Christians pray for security. But it is really odd. A hedge, huh? I don't mean to complain. Is that the best you can do? How about a thick cement wall? With some razor wire on top of that bad boy. When we pray for security and protection, we're looking for hope and assurance that physically we'll be okay. Spiritually, we will be guarded. And since we don't have bushes immediately sprouting up around our prayer groups, we must ask a really interesting and necessary question. How does God protect us? Is it a nice feeling where I feel like I will be okay? Is it an avoidance of all trouble for the rest of our lives? Are there guardian angels? What is this hedge of protection? This episode, we don't have to do in-depth word studies. We don't have to go to the Greek or the Hebrew because the phrase hedge of protection is actually pulled straight from Scripture. In Job chapter 1, all of the angels are assembled together in God's throne room, and Satan was there among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roving about the earth and from walking back and forth across it. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a pure and upright man, one who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Is it for nothing that Job fears God? Have you not made a hedge around him and his household and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his livestock have increased in the land. But extend your hand and strike everything he has, and he will no doubt curse you to your face. God has put some sort of protection around Job that has allowed him to flourish. And Satan's accusation is, he only worships you because you've given him comfort and wealth. Now, when I hear that a hedge of protection can make me flourish, of course, I want that kind of protection. I mean, don't we all? We don't want to end up like Job who lost everything. We want to be protected. But the implication of Satan's accusation is that if we only want protection from God in order to make us comfortable, 
then we don't really worship God at all. So a hedge of protection isn't just having more flourishing things. It's got to be deeper than that. It's got to be a spiritual protection. But what was a hedge of protection? Why was that something that was so strong? There were walls back then. They did have stone walls. There were cities surrounded by them in that time. You have to remember that this is written to an agrarian society. People who mostly farm, who mostly keep livestock like sheep and cattle. And there were particular dangers that were present then that we don't necessarily experience now in a modern society. One of the greatest risks that you undertook raising livestock was attack from wild animals. The Bible mentions lions, wolves, bears, leopards, hyenas. It's like you took all the nastiest animals from the zoo, all those nasty predators, and put them in Israel. So, how do you, ancient farmer, protect your animals? Well, you could build a stone wall, but it would take a lot of time to build. And it would have to be really tall. I mean, we're talking about leopards that can climb trees. What's to keep an animal just from jumping over the top of it? And you could build a fence, but wood wasn't readily available. The wood you had, you probably needed to build your house or prop up your tent or build a fire to cook over. So instead of building a wall, which would take a lot of time, or a fence, which would take a lot of resources, you could just cultivate a thorn bush to grow thickly around your livestock. Thorn bushes would be too dense to crawl through too sharp to chew through, and too deep for all but the most determined leopard to jump over. A hedge would also be a deterrent for sheeps and goats to seek an escape. So you'd keep all of the nasty animals out and all of the good animals in. And as Satan is compared to a lion looking for someone to devour, a thorn hedge is an appropriate metaphor for the protection God gives his followers. But the very fact that we have to investigate that phrase and explain it means it's culturally detached from where we are. It may sound nice, but it's not necessarily helpful to use if we're praying for protection, which is a good and right thing to do, to trust God for our security. So how does God protect us? What is that hedge of protection that he puts around us? A common belief is guardian angels. I got a bust in the jaw in answer to a prayer a little bit ago. Oh, no, 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 George. I'm the answer to your prayer. That's why I was sent down here. How'd you know my name? Oh, I know all about you. I've watched you grow up from a little boy. What are you, a mind reader or something? <laughs> in a recent study conducted by the Baylor University Institute for Studies of Religion, over 55% of Americans believe that they have a guardian angel. Well, who are you then? Clarence Hart, buddy, AS2. AS2, what's that AS2? Angel, second class. And those 55%, those who believe that they have a specific assigned guardian angel to them, they aren't just Christians. It's a belief that goes across all religious boundaries. That includes people who consider themselves non-religious. In fact, one out of five non-religious persons believe that they have a guardian angel, according to this study. As a result, it is exceedingly common to pray to angels or to even seek 
advice or guidance from your angel first before God. They're seen as a invisible friend that can actually do some good. And there's a lot of religious space given to investigating this guardian angel or getting to know them better. In fact, you can even find out your guardian angel's name. If you go to beliefnet.com, there's an article aptly titled, What is your guardian angel's name? Quote, your guardian angel is here to guide and protect you. Your guardian angel has a name so that you can call upon him or her at any time. If you don't already know what your guardian angel's name is, there's a very simple way to find out. All you need to do is to set aside a few minutes and find a quiet place where you will not be disturbed. Sit in a comfortable seat where you can sit up straight and place your feet flat on the floor. Make sure you take off anything that binds you, including jewelry, shoes, or a tight belt. Accept whatever name is given to you. Your guardian angel is speaking to you telepathically, so make sure to accept whatever you are receiving. Your guardian angel is yours alone, so don't look it up to see if there is such an angel. If the name seems funny to you that randomly pops into your head, accept it anyway. If you have doubts about what you received, ask your angel to confirm it in the name by giving you signs during the next few days. I tried this, and my angel's name is Shambalabob. Shambalabob. It seemed weird, but the article told me to not question it. And I shouldn't look it up. The article told me not to do that either. So I've got a specific angel that's named Shambalabob. And I know that because it randomly came into my head when I was sitting in a quiet place. It's completely subjective. And I have no way of knowing whether I made up the name Shambalabob or if it actually is some angel's name. This article is extremely indicative of the entire culture surrounding guardian angels. It's an extremely subjective means by which we try to comfort ourselves. It's a way we try to tell ourselves that there is someone looking out for us, someone personally looking out for us, an invisible guardian. Now, the question is whether or not each person actually has this assigned angel. We see a lot of the roles of angel in Scripture and that angels watch over believers, but not that there's a specifically assigned one. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel did have an archangel, Michael, assigned to it in Daniel chapter 10 and 12. But Scripture nowhere states that an angel is assigned to an individual. Angels were sometimes sent to individuals, but there's no mention of a permanent assignment. The Jews fully developed that belief in guardian angels during the time between the Old and New Testaments, the intertestimonial period. The belief in guardian angels has been around for a long time, but there is no explicit scriptural basis for it. It is scriptural to say that God uses them as he sees fit. That is, he in no way needs them to accomplish his purposes, but he chooses to use them nevertheless. What you do see in scripture is that angels are ministering spirits. They are sent by God to serve people. They are finite. They were created. It's possible for them to sin, but it's not possible for them to be redeemed. First Peter says the gospel is a mystery that they long to look into. They're not omniscient. They don't know everything. They're not omnipotent. They're not all-powerful. They're not omnipresent. They're not in all places. But God is. 
a lot of the things that we put on guardian angels are actually things that the Holy Spirit does. He guides us. He teaches us how to pray. He seals us for eternity. He leads us in all truth. It seems as though much of the guardian angel mythos exists because we just simply don't understand the Holy Spirit. We should never look to angels to do what God says that he does. It is God who protects us. But what about Job? God allowed him to suffer. It seemed like God wasn't protecting him. Well, let's not just say what it seems like. When you actually read Job, you see that God is present the entire time. Despite all the misery and the afflictions Job endured, God was protecting him from greater harm. God also protected Job's faith, allowing him to be tested only so far before he stepped in and spoke to Job. Even though Job could not see God working behind the scenes, he came to understand that God's protection is sure and faithful because he promises to his people, I will never leave you and never forsake you. He visibly shows up to Job when Job accuses him of wrongdoing, when he says, God, you messed up because I'm suffering. God shows up in a whirlwind, the ancient image for a warrior, but he shows up like a warrior, not against Job, but saying, Job, I am fighting for you against darkness and against evil, and one day I will make all things new. Although God has the ability to deliver us out of every physical calamity or trouble, it may not be his will to do so. Sometimes he uses trials to purify us. James chapter 1 actually says that trials are the means by which we are perfected and made into the image of Christ. Romans chapter 5 says that we rejoice in sufferings knowing that they produce endurance and endurance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We may think that if God really wanted to protect us, he would provide us with wealth and ease in this life. When we think of what God should change, we frequently think about our circumstances. But when you look at Scripture, you see that God is primarily focused on our character. Often for me to gain patience, I have to be put in a situation where I have to be patient. I never think that my impatience is actually the real problem with traffic. It's always someone else's fault. In order to be self-controlling, I have to actually be put in situations where I have to control myself. No one makes me irritable. They simply reveal the irritable person that's been marinating secretly for a long time. I'm not saying that every calamity is a result of our own personal sinfulness, that God is trying to teach us a lesson or punish us. But all brokenness, all death is a result of us living in a fallen world. Life isn't easy. It is a battle. Stand firm, therefore, by fastening the belt of truth around your waist, by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, by fitting your feet with the preparation that comes with the good news of peace, and in all of this, by taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We are absolutely protected. 
the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith that extinguishes every evil thing that comes your way, and it's all held together by the belt of truth. But can we ever go far enough to lose God's protection? Can we wander outside of that hedge? What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also is interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we encountered death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we have complete victory through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Trial and trouble isn't a sign that God has abandoned us. We live in a sinful world. We will encounter the result of sin. But God in his goodness turns all evils inside out and uses them to perfect you, to make you more like Jesus so that you might be more assured of your salvation. You are sons and daughters of the living God. Nothing can pull you away from him. Nothing can change your identity in Christ. God sent his son to die for you. And when Jesus was resurrected, he and the Father sent the Holy Spirit so that you might live in righteousness. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a line of protection that can never be broken. Should we pray for protection? Absolutely. It shows that we rely on God and we know where our help comes from. We don't need guardian angels because we have a guardian God. And nothing can separate you from him. That's a hedge even the most determined leopard can't jump over. This has been a production of Fathom Magazine. To find out more, visit fathommag.com.